Well, please open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. And as you turn there, uh, of course, we've already read this this morning, but uh, as you turn there, I just want to remind you that we've already spent the last couple of weeks in just the first two verses. And what we were trying to do was kind of basically clear the ground way and clear up any misconceptions that we may have had about God's law. And we said that the two great errors that we tend to fall into is either antinomianism, which is to just throw off God's law and say, well, we don't need God's law. We can live how we want now that we're Christians, that we don't want to fall into that ditch, nor do we want to fall into the ditch of legalism, which is to say that we earn our right standing with God by our law keeping. We said that the law is to be a mirror wherein we look in it to uh, see our sinfulness and it exposes what we've done wrong and how we've failed to keep God's commands. It is a curb or a leash to restrain evil and it is also a light to guide us. Now, let's read the first three verses of Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt Out of the house of bondage, you shall have no other gods before me. You already know that the Ten Commandments can be summarized by two overarching commands. We hear this regularly and we've already heard it in the worship service today. That the first four commandments deal primarily with how we are to love God, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. And that commandments 5 through 10 deal primarily with how we are to love our neighbor. And in each of these commandments, there are certain things that God forbids and certain things that God requires. And the case laws of the Old Testament, while we might think of them as something strange or silly or unimportant, the case laws are actually practical applications of the Ten Commandments. And we're going to spend, there are about three chapters of case laws after the Ten Commandments, beginning in chapter 21, I think in verse 1, in the first verse there. And so we'll get to those case laws and talk about how the uh, Ten Commandments are to be applied to the, to the law in our everyday lives. But here, as we go through these Ten Commandments in the coming months, what I want to focus on is those things that God requires of us and those things that are forbidden. So with each of these commandments, we're going to spend more time on some than others. Uh, I have no... I, I decided as we've been going through Exodus, I'm just going to quit telling y'all how long we're going to do something because I never tell the truth. So um, anyway, uh, so but with each of these, of course, we're going to look at the command itself and, and what the text actually says and then talk about those duties that are required and those things that are forbidden. So let's look at the first commandment, the text of it. With most of the commandments, it starts out with the word you. And the you is actually singular. You can tell this if you're reading the King James Version, which helps to preserve whether or not you is singular or plural. Just fun tip, by the way. The T's in the King James are singular, and the Y's are plural. Ye and you uh, are plural, and thee and thou and thy are singular. So just that's uh, one, uh, one help if you're ever reading the King James. One, uh, one thing that's helpful when you're using that translation. But here, why is the you singular? Uh, 
If God gives his law to a vast group of people, somewhere around probably two to three million people, why is the use singular? Well, I think there are two possible reasons. It could be, it could be that the reason the you is singular is because it's given to a group of people and they're to see themselves in unity together, that they are one group of people. That could be it. But I think that the reason that you is singular is because when hearing the commands, each member of the covenant ought to recognize the individual aspect of the law. In other words, when you hear you, Ray, you, Carl, you, Mike, you are not to have any other gods before me, it carries with it this weight to know, you know, this is not just something that's for my neighbor. This is something for me. I am required by God to keep these commandments. And by the way, they are commandments. It says, thou shalt have, shalt have no other gods before me. These are not suggestions or guidelines or requests. These are demands, requirements that God places upon our lives. We do not have the option to say, well, I like this command, but I don't like this command. God says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, some have looked at the wording here where it says no other gods and thought, well, is this saying that in terms of order, we can have a few gods as long as, you know, the, the true God is at the top of the list. And then some have said, well, when looking at this, well, uh, that the Old Testament kind of presents this polytheistic religion, but Israel was supposed to just worship Jehovah. And, and they recognize that there are other gods that rule as long as they just worship Jehovah. And none of those things could be further from the truth. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says, there is no other God but one, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God. In other words, what Paul is saying is not that there are other real gods or real powers that rule the universe. What Paul is saying and what is being affirmed by this commandment is that there are other things that we worship as gods. In fact, the Bible even calls Satan a god in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. It says, Whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe. It's not saying that, uh, you know, this idea of yin and yang or dualism where Satan and God both rule the universe and they're both in charge and, and that Satan can do whatever he wants. No, what, what uh, Paul is saying there is that people worship Satan as a god. That there are people who actually think that Satan is in charge. So this isn't an affirmation that there are multiple real gods or, or anything like that. This is simply an affirmation that uh, the Lord, the true God, the true and the living God, as our brother Jason prayed earlier, is to be the, have supreme authority in our lives and that we are to render all worship and glory to Him alone. Now, we read earlier from the Shorter Catechism that these words before me, that are at the end of the commandment, these words before me teach us that God takes notice of and is much displeased with the sin of having any other God. And literally how this reads in Hebrew is that thou shalt have no other gods in my face. And the very language 
requires us to recognize what an assault it is to have anything else in our lives that takes the place of true God. Everything that we have, we owe to Him. All worship, all honor, all praise is to be rendered to God and God alone. Uh, One commentator said, he kind of summarizes all the Ten Commandments. In the first commandment, he says, protects true theology. That is to say that uh, what this commandment forbids in the first commandment, whatever it tells us, whatever's wrapped up in here that we shouldn't do, and whatever is required of us in this, that we should worship God, that we have a duty to actually do certain things, and that we have a responsibility to abstain from certain things, all, all that this commandment requires will protect us from having false views of God. So here's the text of the command. You shall have no other gods before me or in my face. Let's begin this week by talking about what the commandment forbids. Now, some of us think, well, I've never prayed to a tree or a totem pole or an animal, so I'm, I'm fairly certain that I'm good to go on this commandment. Now, I also know that there are people in this room who know what real idolatry is. That, uh, um, and we'll talk about this more in just a few minutes. But that probably any time we sin, we're actually committing idolatry. And I know that many people in this room have heard the famous saying from Calvin that the human heart is an idol-making factory, that we just have this tendency to create idol after idol after idol, things that we worship. So I want you to listen carefully as we go through these. Some of these will probably have uh, nothing to do with you. you. You'll know people that deal with these, uh, but listen carefully because some of these, I'm certain, are going to apply to all of us. So we're going to talk about a few things that this command prohibits. The first, of course, is atheism. And this is the denial of the existence of God. So anyone that claims with their mouth and professes to say that the Christian God does not exist, this person is breaking the first commandment. This is atheism, the denial of the existence of the true God. Secondly, idolatry. After atheism, idolatry. Now, I know that we use the word idolatry a lot, but here's what I mean by idolatry here in, in this specific context. I'm talking about worshiping any false god. So we might say, yes, the triune God of Scripture, the Christian God exists, but there are some who would say, yes, he does, but I I worship this God. And some examples of this would be Mormonism, who, who, by the way, denies the existence of the Christian God. They do not believe in a trinity, that one God eternally existing in three persons. They believe probably in an infinite number of gods, uh, Mormonism. Islam denies the existence of the Christian God as well as Judaism. Judaism denies the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, which puts it in the category of denying the existence of the true God. And now we also need to recognize that any service or worship that we, we render to anyone that is not God let me, be care- let me be careful what I mean. I, service, we, we serve all the time, okay? 
but I, I'm talking about worship, service in the sense of worship. In any act of worship that we render to anyone that is not the true God is idolatry, which means that if we ever pray to angels or if we ever pray to saints, dead Christians or uh, family members or anything like that, then we are guilty of idolatry. We are rendering worship prayers to those that are not the true God. So atheism is forbidden. Idolatry is forbidden. Thirdly, now, you know, when I was listing these, I thought somebody might laugh at this. I I wonder if somebody's going to think this is silly. Thirdly, sorcery and witchcraft. Now, I know that in our day, we don't have a lot of people walking around in funny, pointy hats. However, there are several things tied up in sorcery and witchcraft that uh, you may not have considered before. Um, Oftentimes, in the scriptures, the use of hallucinogenic drugs is associated with sorcery and witchcraft. You know, you do acid or shrooms or things like that. Uh, I had a friend that I used to work with that did acid, and he would talk about basically going to the other side to get information from these beings and talk to these beings. And by the way, for many of the people that I've spoken to who have done this, and I say that like I've, there are hundreds of them. There aren't. They're just a, 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 the number of people you could count on your one hand, on one hand. But from the people that I've spoken to, if you end up getting involved in this, it always seems as though it starts out as you're contacting these beings on the other side and they're teaching you good things and it starts out really well. But it inevitably ends up being where they tell you something about Jesus, where Jesus isn't who he said he was or something about the Bible. Isn't that very interesting about hallucinogenic drugs? They, uh, many of them, I'm sure this is not always the case, um, but many of them end up where you're uh, getting some kind of information that has something to do with Scripture telling you that Jesus isn't who he said he is. Makes me think that these are much more demonic than we tend to give them credit for. Contact with the dead, or necromancy, would be an example of this. All right, so after sorcery and witchcraft, let's move a little closer to home. Lukewarmness. Revelation chapter 3, verse 15, he says to the church in Laodicea, this is Christ communicating to his church. Now, here's what he says. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now let's ask a question for self-reflection here. How would you describe your walk with Christ? Would you describe your personal walk with Christ as being filled with zeal? Being filled with joy. Okay, if you answer no, then I think you know that we have need of repentance there. If you answered yes, let me throw this out there. The church at Laodicea would have answered the same way. This is exactly what he's rebuking them for. You think 
you've got this zealous and wonderful relationship with Christ, that you're walking with Christ the way that you, you, you should be. However, Christ has an estimation of them that's very different. He says, I think you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So then more importantly, after your own self-examination is, does Christ think that way of you and your walk with Him? Does Christ think that you're walking with Him with zeal, with joy, serving Him fervently, honoring Him in all that you do? Let's go to one more. I want you to turn to Psalm 14. Psalm chapter 14, if you have a copy of God's Word. And this is what Sharnak calls, excuse me, Stephen Sharnak, the great Puritan, he calls this practical atheism. Okay? Practical atheism. Psalm 14, beginning in verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. Now let's kind of break this down a little bit. We see the word fool, and if we use the word fool, a lot of times we're, we're engaging in name-calling if we call someone a fool. But when the Bible uses the word fool, it is making a moral judgment about someone. It is saying that this person is an evil or a wicked person. This person does not live with the wisdom of God at the forefront of their mind and of their heart. So this is a, a moral description. This is not name-calling. Now, I hear this verse used a lot when talking about atheism, but that's, that's part of what's in here, okay? But notice that it doesn't say the fool has said in his mouth or with his mouth there is no God. The psalmist says the fool has said in his heart. So we're not talking about someone whose outward profession, maybe, maybe they are, or maybe, they, maybe, maybe not. But we're not specifically talking here in the text about someone whose outward profession is there is no God. We're talking about someone in whom the posture of their heart is there is no God. You see, man's problem is not primarily intellectual. Man's problem is that he wants to rebel against God. It's not that we're just not smart enough or that we need more information. The problem is we want to reject what we know to be true. Let me, let me just keep going here. He says next, they are corrupt. And, and now this word for corrupt, I know it's been a while since we've been way back in Exodus talking about the angel of death or the destroyer. But this word for corrupt here is the same word for the destroyer that entered into the houses of Egypt and mutilated or ruined or killed in some way unimaginable that we, we really don't even know how horrific or horrendous the mutilation was of the firstborn. But this is what God's description of man's nature apart from Christ is. He says, they are corrupt. By your very nature, you are ruined, mutilated. You're, you're messed up. You're, na- you're not just a good person who once in a while does a few off-color things. You, in your very nature, are ruined, marred, mutilated. He says they have done abominable works. A man or a person, a woman, child, a, a child, children, will do abominable things if they have an abominable nature. 
If you have a corrupt nature, you're going to do corrupt things. And then he says, he finishes off this verse by saying, there is none who does good. Now, we might be tempted to think, yes, but this is talking about Israel, God's covenant people in the Old Testament, that, you know, or, or their enemies. This isn't talking about Israel. No, it is talking about Israel. In fact, Paul uses this very psalm in Romans 3 to say, to, to put the Jews or Israel under sin. And, and he talks about basically the comprehensive nature of what David is saying here. He's saying everyone apart from Christ fits into this category. You see, every single time that we sin, we're not going to say it with our mouths. I mean, we're good Christian folk that go to church on Sunday, probably go to Bible studies during the week. We're not going to say there is no God. But every single time that we sin, the posture of our heart is, I can get away with this. God's not going to judge me for this sin. Or so-and-so's not going to find out about it. Or it's not really that big a deal. And in all of these ways, we're essentially denying who God is. That God isn't really as holy as He says He is. Yes, I know that He says this sin should be punished in hell for all eternity, but it's really not that big a deal. And so with our hearts, we say there is no God. In our very hearts, we're being atheistical with our uh, the way that we think about how we approach these things. So atheism is not just something that's out there. Practical atheism is something that's very much in here anytime we say, well, I can get away with it, or it's not that big a deal, or she shouldn't have made me mad talking to me that way, as if we're denying the culpability that we, our guiltiness in a conflict. In all of these ways, we are guilty of breaking the first commandment. We're saying with our hearts, there is no God. Now, a while ago, I mentioned that some of ourselves are probably thinking, okay, you know, we don't bow down to totem poles. We don't pray to the grass or the trees or anything silly like that. But the reality is that if you're... If, if you're more aware of your guiltiness of idolatry right now than you were five or ten minutes ago, then you're in need of repentance. Then you have the same arrogance in your heart that the rich young ruler did. You remember the story of the rich young ruler? Remember this very wealthy man, young man, comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus basically tells him to keep the commandments of God, which, by the way, he's using a teaching tool there. And the rich young ruler says, oh, oh, I've kept all those for my youth. I'm good. I'm, I'm good. I've got that down. And he says, okay, one, one more thing. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. And you know what it says after that? By the way, Jesus doesn't tell this to every wealthy person. The point was that this was this man's idol. This was what this man worshipped, and Jesus knew that. So he's got to go to his heart. He's got to tell him, look, unless you repent of your idolatry, the way that you view finances and the way that you view your comfort, you're going to perish forever and suffer for your sins in hell. And so the question is, if, if you are more aware of your guiltiness of the first commandment now than a few moments ago, then you're going to be like the rich young ruler who goes away sorrowful, sorrowful unless, 
unless you repent of it, unless you confess the sin and unless you forsake it. So let me let me just give one more one more prohibition that I believe is wrapped up into this commandment. And that is that we are forbidden from denying the provision that God has made for our idolatry. So we've, we've talked about these other atheism. We've talked about sorcery and witchcraft and, and practical atheism and lukewarmness. All of these are violations of the first commandment. Here's another one. To deny the provision that God has made for our idolatry. Here's what I mean. You can't fix your idolatry. I can't fix my idolatry. I can't make it go away. I mean, it, I, I think I mentioned this a week or two ago. If we killed three people, we can't say, but yeah, I didn't kill all these other people. It should make up for this. The, the law can make demands, but it cannot make up for unmet demands. The only way that we can be forgiven of our practical atheism, all of our idolatry, anytime we sin, anytime we love something more than the Lord Jesus Christ, the only way that we can be freed from that is through the blood of the Lord Jesus. You see, anytime we kind of minimize our sin, anytime we kind of minimize our irritability with our children or with our spouse or with a coworker or anything like that, anytime we make something small, we act like Jesus didn't have to be butchered alive and take the full weight of the wrath of God for our sins to be forgiven. You see, any what we would call little sin, I mean, little, little idolatry? Could there ever be such a thing as a little sin? And yet this is what we do in our hearts every single time that we sin. Every single time we say, it's not that big a deal. Or he'll get over it or she'll get over it. Whatever, I mean, whatever it is, the posture of our heart is not, I'll bow before God and say, not my will, but thine be done. Every time, in some way, we're denying who God says He is. But God, Ephesians 2.4, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I mean... Praise God that God did not leave us in our deadness and say, I'll just let them rot and perish forever in eternity and suffer under my wrath. He sent His own Son to take the wrath that should be poured out on us. What a provision God has made for a bunch of rebellious people who have done virtually nothing our whole lives, but make up new idols almost every day. New things to worship. Sometimes, probably oftentimes, rehashing the old idols and bringing those up again. I mean, thank God for the Lord Jesus Christ, who paid for our sins, rose from the dead, so that we could be forgiven for all the ways that we fail Him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, your mercy and your grace are great. 
Forgive us once again, O Lord, for our atheism, for our practical atheism, for having the posture of our heart say anything other than, you are the true and the living God and we ought to bow before you and submit to your will. God, forgive us for our idolatry. Cleanse us by the blood of Jesus. And as we approach our time of the meal, what a glorious thing to know that Christ has invited us to His house today to feed us and to nourish us. Lord, help us to remember that Christ was broken for every quote-unquote little sin, little idolatry that we commit. In Christ's name, amen.